0: Uh, Dave is going to come up and read this passage to us. Acts chapter two, starting at verse thirty eight. Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved.
1: Thanks, David. Good, let's keep that passage open, let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, you tell us in Psalm 119 that your word is more precious than silver and gold. Father, as we come to read your word now and reflect upon it and with your help apply it to our lives, help us to appreciate just how precious your word is as it changes each one of us into the likeness of Christ. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder if I was to ask you the question this morning, why does the local church exist? What would you say? Why does the local church at Long Crendon exist? No doubt there's many valid answers to that question, but one of the most helpful analogies I've heard to help us understand the purpose of the local church is an analogy that was used by the the great Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he described the local church as a field hospital and he took the analogy from the first world war where the field hospital was this this first aid tent just back from the front line where the fighting was at its fiercest and it's the place where the people were dragged off the front line and it's a place where they were looked after they were fed and they were watered and they were patched up and they regained their strength in order to emerge back onto the front line to make their stand for king and country. And you'll see from the picture, it wasn't a particularly smart place. This isn't a a private hospital. This is a functional place where people were strengthened. To be back in the place where they should be, on the front line. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you know what, it's similar with the church. Because being a Christian in life can be pretty tough, right? In your schools universities, places of work, sports teams, wherever it may be, it can be pretty hard being a Christian. And the local church is just that little retreat, just back from the front line, not too far away. But it's a place where we gather together, and it's a place where we are fed and watered, where we are taught the word of God. It is a place where we are are patched up, we are prayed for, we are loved, we are cared for, and it's a place where we are strengthened by the promises of God to re-emerge back onto the front line of life and make us stand there for Christ. You see, God calls us to be a church on the front line, not a church in retreats. And that's exactly what we see, isn't it, in the book of Acts, where you see a church on a mission, We see a church on the move, taking the good news of the gospel by the power of the Spirit to the very ends of the earth. And we see that, don't we, in Acts 1, verse 8. It's a verse we should be coming pretty familiar with by now, a verse that holds this whole narrative together. And so Jesus says to his apostles, before he ascends to glory, he says to them, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In the first week, we looked at the promised spirits back in Acts chapter 1. At the start of Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of that promise with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Peter then preaches the gospel In the power of the Spirit and the New Testament church is born. Have a look back at Luke's wonderful summary of that remarkable day. Verse 40 and 41. It's where we left off last week. With many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them. What a powerful combination to warn with truth and to plead with people's hearts. To turn To Christ to save yourselves from this corrupt generation those who accepted the message were baptized And about three thousand were added to the number that day It's a good day for the gospel It's a very good day for the gospel and what then follows in the section before us this morning Acts chapter 2 verse 42 to 47 is a precious insight into what these new believers then did when they gathered together It's a day, if you like, in the life of the New Testament church. Now, a question you'll often get asked when you look at the book of Acts, or certainly when you look at a passage like this, is whether what we are reading is primarily descriptive or prescriptive. I.e., is Luke simply describing what was here 2,000 years ago? Or is he prescribing what should be for every future generation? And see, with a politician's hat on, I think it's actually a bit of both. You see, Luke isn't writing to give us an exact blueprint of how we should set up and structure the church today. There's no imperatives or commands in this passage saying, this is exactly how you should do it. This is primarily descriptive. Luke looks in on the New Testament church. However... As we get this little cameo or snapshot of the New Testament church in action, there are principles that we see here that are reinforced again and again and again and again throughout the New Testament. Principles that must be adopted and shared if we're going to be a healthy, flourishing, mission-minded church that lives life on the front line. And you see, this morning, we're going to pick up on three marks that we see in this New Testament church. And as we do, we must be asking the question, am I? Are we, this morning as a church, marked by those same principles? If Dr. Luke were to look in a day in the life of Long Crendon Church, would he see these same wonderful biblical principles and priorities embedded in his people here? in Long Crendon. So firstly, a healthy, spirit-filled church, we learn, is devoted to God. Have a look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That word devoted that you see there at the start of verse 42, it carries the sense of an attachment like glue. These are things that the early church literally stuck to. They prioritized. It became part of their, their DNA and their makeup. And you see in verse 42 that that devotion to God is expressed in a number of ways. And firstly, we see that that devotion to God is expressed in a devotion to God's word. you see it there? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles were those who had walked with Jesus. They had heard his mighty words. They had seen his mighty acts. They were a people whom Jesus personally commissioned to teach with authority. It's an authority that you see authenticated there in verse 43 with signs and with wonders. And it's an authority that we now have written down for us in the New Testament. You see, when we talk about being devoted to the apostles' teaching, we're talking about being devoted to the scriptures, to the word of God, to the Bible, as we have it today. John Stott, in his commentary on this section, said, one of the first things that the Spirit did at Pentecost was to open up a school. The apostles were the teachers, and there were 3,000 plus pupils in class that day. You see, the New Testament church was a learning church. And I know the moment I say that, there is a slight danger because, you see, being a learning church, knowing God's word, doesn't always equate to loving God more. Let me say that again. Being a learning church and knowing God's word doesn't always equate necessarily to loving God more. Think about the scribes and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day. They knew God's word inside out, right? They spent every day of their lives writing the law and teaching the law. Yet what do we see in the New Testament? We see that their hearts were actually far from God. They were not devoted to God. In fact, they hated Jesus and they had him crucified on a cross. You see, when it comes to reading the Bible, this isn't just a head thing. We're not just talking about filling our head with facts. This is a heart issue. We're not just talking about learning full stop. We're talking about learning to love. Learning to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength and mind. Learning to love other people as ourselves. You see, it is being devoted to the scriptures. But being devoted into the scriptures in a way that awakens our appetites and our affections and increases our devotion for God. You see, firstly, a devotion to God is seen in studying the scriptures. Secondly, a devotion to God is expressed in concerning ourselves with the things of Christ. Have a look at that little phrase, the third little phrase in verse 42. They devote devote themselves to the breaking of bread. You see it again in verse 46. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. There's been much debate about that little phrase. Many commentators think that it's an explicit reference to the Lord's Supper of communion. Others think it's a more general phrase of just coming together as believers around a meal and spending time together. But you see, almost wherever you land on that, whatever you say that little phrase means there, in practice, it means pretty much the same thing. Because the point is, these new believers, this fledgling church, they came together intentionally around the word of God, and they reflected upon the things of Christ, whether that was in the more formal sense that we might carry out communion today or a more informal way where they ate and they drank and they, they sang and they looked at God's word and they remembered Jesus. Informal or formal, here's the point, they did life together with Christ right at the center. And you see it wasn't a token gesture, this wasn't just once in a while as things happened They are intentional and deliberate in coming together to do this. Verse 46, every day they continue to meet together. To put Christ at the center of their lives. And so the question we must ask ourselves is, are we as a church intentional? Are we deliberate, not just on a Sunday, but coming together as God's people? And reflecting together on the things of Christ in a way that awakens a devotion in our hearts. To our loving God. The early church was. And so should we be. Thirdly, a devotion to God we see here expressed in a devotion to prayer. Again, end of verse 42. They devoted themselves to prayer. We saw this back in chapter 1, remember? Chapter 1 verse 14 as the apostles and co. were waiting obediently for the Holy Spirit to come. Do you remember the language that was used of them? They joined. They joined together constantly in prayer. Now in verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. And we'll see next week in Acts chapter 4, verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. The life of the early church was saturated in prayer. Why? Because they recognized their weakness and they recognized God's strength. You see, here's the deal, friends. If we're going to be a church that sees lives changed by Christ, and that is our vision as a church, and that means growth in maturity and growth in number, then we need to be a people of prayer. But the problem's this, I think, one of the problems, certainly. We live in a world that tries to squeeze 30 hours a day into 24, right? Right? It's just busy. Life is just busy. Look at the church prayer diary. Busy, events, activities, so full of stuff. Good stuff, but so full. Look at your own personal diaries, if you dare, for next week. Full. So many things going on in life. Our lives are so full of so much stuff. Yet often so empty of prayer. You see, we can have all the strategy we want, all the activity running through our lives, and we can be world-class at what we do in this place. But without a reliance upon God, without coming to our Heavenly Father and asking that by His Spirit He would give power to our activity, it will be void of power. And we will not see lives changed by Christ unless we're devoted to prayer, as we're reminded in Psalm 127 verse 1 unless the lord builds the house the builders labor in vain Unless god builds his church His people will labor in vain Let's not be a people who labor in vain. Let's be a people who pray in expectancy Upon god to build his church here in this place and fourthly Being devoted to God expresses itself in praise to God. Have a look at the end of verse 46 going into verse 47. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. It is the inevitable consequence If we study the scriptures, if we come together as God's people and reflect upon the things of Christ, if we go to our knees in prayer, then we will become a people of praise. God will awaken those affections in our hearts. And it will be a praise that cannot be contained to the four walls of a church, but a praise that will spill out into all of life. And we'll come to think about this because praise becomes witness when we do not contain it to the church building here. The early church was devoted to God. They studied the scriptures. They reflected upon their savior. They prayed for God's blessing and they praised God's name. So let's be a people who look up in devotion to God and do the same. But secondly... We see in these few verses a church that isn't just looking up in devotion to God. We see a church that is looking around, that is committed to one another. And you see that in that little word that we yet to tackle in verse 42. They devoted themselves to fellowship. It's a word that can be thrown around a little bit loosely today. And we talk about just hanging out with Christians as fellowship, time after here, fellowship. And it can be, that can be fellowship. But fellowship, let me say, is way more profound. It is way deeper than just hanging out with Christians. It's more akin to the word partnership that we might now associate with the business world in really coming together, uniting together around something. I don't know whether anyone remembers or knows, in fact, who these two people are. It's a pretty old, faded photograph. There's a bit of a clue with the sign. Richard and Morris McDonald, co-founders of the now global name that we know to be McDonald's. This was them stood outside the first site where they were going to have the first ever drive-through. And you see, you read a little bit of their story. And what's remarkable, even though they're brothers, they were very different characters. Yet they came together. They partnered around a shared conviction and a clear vision to see a hamburger outlet in every town and city in the U.S. And they gave their lives almost, committed themselves to this cause together. And you see that word partnership, fellowship, it's the same with the church. Just look around, what a mixed bag of people the local church is, right? It's what's so beautiful about the local church. Different personalities, different characteristics, different backgrounds, different nationalities. But we all come together, bound together by the work of Christ. Bound together by a common cause and a shared conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. And his gospel is to go to the nations. You see, we are one in Christ, friends, this morning. And it's a oneness or it's a togetherness, which is a word that comes up three times in this little section that should be visible in all of life. And I guess the question that we're asking is, what does that actually look like in practice? And you see, it looks like this in verse 44 and 45. At least it looks like this in part. This isn't the totality of fellowship, but this is what it can look like in verse 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That's the same root word for fellowship, to have everything in common. So what do they do in this fellowship together? Verse 45. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. That's some verse, isn't it? They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. Now, that doesn't mean we all head home and we put our houses on the market and we sell everything we've got. Because remember, this is primarily descriptive, describing what was, not prescribing exactly what should be. That might be the call upon your heart to do that. Great, if it is. But you see in verse 46, this wasn't the call for everyone because they still met in people's homes. Not everyone had sold their homes. They still met in people's homes together. This isn't a blanket giveaway of all possessions. But you see, there is a principle in here that we must be clear on. Believers should have a generous nature towards each other. And especially, you see, this all the more as you go through the book of Acts, especially to those in need. And I'm not just talking about being generous with our money. I'm talking about being generous with our time, with our energy, and with our affections. As one author said, Christian fellowship is Christian caring. And Christian caring is Christian sharing. So what does that look like? What does it look like for us to take that principle of being generous towards each other and applying it into the life of the church today? You see, there's many specific applications, no doubt, that we could make in the context of giving. But I'd like to make a more general application today, because it must mean this at the very least, right? It means that we must hold ever so loosely to all that God has given us. Ever so loosely. Because you know what? Anything that you have in life, your house, your possessions, your car, your job, your money, your time, your energy, your talents. Guess what? They're not yours. They're not yours and they're not mine. They are generous gifts from a gracious God, and he gives them to us on loan. We are to be stewards of these things, but they're not mine. And they're really not yours. You might say, my house, my car, my time. It's not. It's God's. And he has given it to you in order to be a blessing to others. And when we begin to grasp that, that all that I have isn't mine, then we begin to give away in order to be a blessing To others A spirit-filled church looks up in devotion to God And a spirit-filled church looks around in commitment to one another And then lastly a spirit-filled church is open to the world So look out verse 46 and 47 Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts They broke bread in their homes And ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, here's the line that's often forgotten. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I was once in a seminar that was talking about the local church. And we were asked in groups to express visibly what the local church looked like using people. And pretty much every group did something like this. The classic sports huddle where they came together as a group and they put their arms around each other Partners together in this shoulder to shoulder as the irish might sing as if to look each other in the eye and say Do you know what? We're in this together. I'm with you. You're with me victory defeat We will stand together because we're one team, right? And in many ways that is a lovely expression of the church yet ultimately It's an inward-looking church with its backs to the world. And you say, I'm convinced as we work our way through the book of Acts, there is a better expression of the local church. And it is still to stand shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, but not hunched in looking at ourselves, but open to the world. Our lives and our hearts and our time and our energy saying, this is where I want to be engaged on the front line of life with people who need to know christ together yes together but with our hearts and lives open to the world and that i think is the local church in the book of acts and you see as we begin to think about that as we draw things to a close as we think about living lives that are open to the world lives that are aware that there's a people out there that do not know christ then What I love in these verses, which is almost noticeable by his absence, is that it doesn't talk anywhere about any structured evangelism training or about any guest events. And you know what? I'm pro both those things. Don't hear me wrong. There is a place for training people to speak about Christ. I spent 12 years of my life doing it with Christians in Sport. There's a place for guest events to open up our homes and our church to people from who are outside, if you like, at a minute, to come in. There is a place for those things. But what I love as I read these verses here at the end of Acts 2, it's just so normal. They just do life. They center their lives upon the scriptures. They go to their knees in prayer. They they love Christ together. They eat together. They fellowship together. They do life together. And this life isn't contained to here. It spills out. It spills out into praise in all of life which is witness. And what happens? People get saved. The Lord adds to their number daily those who are being saved. And as John Stott again says, we need to recover this expectation of steady and uninterrupted church growth. One of the most attractive pictures of the church in the Bible, and this is where we're going to finish this morning, I think is that of the bride. It is a wonderful picture. The Lord Jesus is the bridegroom and his church is the bride. It is a picture of union, of joy, of celebration and of commitment. And you'll all have been there at a wedding, right? You know that moment when groom stood at the front of church and the bride walks in, what happens? Every single head in the congregation goes. And they look at the bride. In all her beauty and her purity as she sweeps up the aisle to be presented to her groom, to be wed together together. And that is a picture of the church as we sweep through this life to meet Christ on that final day and join together in that lasting celebration that we should turn heads. The church should turn the heads of the watching world because people should look at the church and they should go, I've seen nothing like it ever, anywhere. Such love, such community, such strength, not in themselves, but in something else. It's God. Such assurance, such hope, such vibrancy. The church should be an attractive place to be. Of course, it doesn't mean you'll always be loved by the world. We know that. But as we sweep through this world together as the body of Christ, eyes should turn and people will come. They will be drawn to the church, not because of the church, but because of Christ. Because he is in the church. And he dwells by his spirit within us. And where we begin to live like that, devoted to God, looking up to him always, committed to one another, looking around at those God has put in our lives, and open to the world, looking out, then I've got no doubt that God will graciously add to the number daily those who have been saved. Let me leave you for a moment. Jane's going to come and pray to us in in a minute's time. Well, let me leave you with those three marks there of the early church on the screen as you asked yourself that question I asked you at the beginning. What about me? Am I are we marked by those same priorities today?